Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And in this episode, we're continuing the book, The Search for Captain Slocum by Walter Magnus Teller. We're on the eighth part of the reading, and this is chapter 10. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to help support the podcast. Or you can check out the Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week. Or, of course, the Mariner YouTube channel where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. Chapter 10. Now like a bird on the crest of a wave and now like a waif deep down in the hollow. If the captain's great hopes never wore out completely, certainly smaller ones soon were dissolved. Whereas it had been the legal government of Brazil which, in 1893, had engaged his services, since then the wheel of political fortune had brought changes. Admiral de Mello's men, the so-called rebels, were now in power, and, as Slocum put it, they felt under no less obligation to him than he could have wished. Nevertheless, while in Rio, he called on government officials, seeking the wages due in the matter of the beloved destroyer, all he got, however, was the offer of the ship herself, with her smoke stack awash in Bahia. He declined with thanks. On the 28th of November, Slocum sailed from Rio, keeping on to the southward. Along the coast of Uruguay, the spray went aground. Slocum tried to catch her off using his raised dory, but the dory upset and he nearly drowned. Remember that he could not swim. Three times I had been underwater and trying to right the dory, and I was just saying, now I lay me, when I was seized by a determination to try yet once more, so that no one of the prophets of evil I had left behind me could say, I told you so. Whatever the damage may have been, much or little, I can truly say that the moment was the most serene of my life. With help from friendly ranchers of the Uruguayan Campo, the spray was soon floated again, the captain went on his way to Montevideo. There he received a rousing steam whistle welcome. The spray was docked and overhauled free of charge by the Royal Mail Steamship Company. Slocum was given £20 of sterling and a wonderful makeshift stove for the cold, wet weather ahead. Again he found an old friend, a Captain Howard of Cape Cod. The two captains made an excursion to Buenos Aires, dining together on New England-style fish chowder, while the spray demonstrated her self-steering qualities. They sailed up the Plata River, past the outer roads where, eleven years before, the Aquidneck, with Virginia on board, had anchored, and where the boy, B. Amer, had hoisted the flag letter, J. If the familiar scenes stirred memories, or made Slocum's old wounds burn, the old sailor does not say. Never a word concerning all that had happened to him there. I had not been in Buenos Aires for a number of years, he wrote. That is all. Was the excursion really a pilgrimage to Virginia's grave? Was the lettering still golden on her tombstone? Did the captain see a connection between her death and the voyage he was now embarked on? At Buenos Aires, Slocum again unshipped the sloop's mast and shortened it seven feet. He also reduced the length of her bowsprit five feet, but more than once, when called on to reef the jib, he regretted he had not shortened it further. Leaving Buenos Aires, 26th of January, 1896, Slocum sailed down the Plata, alone, to get on with the voyage. I will not say that I expected all fine sailing on the course for Cape Horn Direct, 
he wrote later, but while I worked at the sails and rigging, I thought only of onward and forward. It was when I anchored in the lonely places that a feeling of awe crept over me. At the last anchorage on the monotonous and muddy river, weak as it may seem, I gave way to my feelings. He never saw Virginia's grave again. Continuing down the coast of Patagonia, Slocum had another hairbreadth escape. One day, while the sloop under short sail was making her way through a storm, a tremendous wave, the culmination of many, came roaring down upon her. The captain just had time to drop sails and get himself on the peak halyards when the mountain of water, masthead high, broke over the vessel. It may have been a minute that from my hold in the rigging I could see no part of the spray's hull, he wrote. Perhaps it was even less time than that, but it seemed a long while, for under great excitement one lives fast. Not only did the past with electric speed flash before me, but I had time while in my hazardous position for resolutions for the future that would take a long time to fulfil. One thinks how often even the best of yachtsmen fall off their yachts, and they are seldom alone or sailing off the Patagonian coast. Early in February 1896, the spray reached and rounded Cape Virgins, the eastern entrance of the Strait of Magellan, it was the most favourable time of year, but she immediately encountered fierce currents and sudden squalls. I reefed the sloop's sails, Slocum wrote, and sitting in the cabin to rest my eyes, I was so strongly impressed with what in all nature I might expect, that as I dozed, the very air I breathed seemed to warn me of danger. My senses heard, Spray ahoy! shouted in warning. I sprang to the deck, wondering who could be there that knew the spray so well as to call out her name passing in the dark, for it was now the blackest of nights all around, except away in the southwest where rose the old familiar white arch, the terror of Cape Horn rapidly pushed up by a southwest gale. I had only a moment to douse sail and lash all solid when it struck. For thirty hours it kept on blowing hard. On the 14th of February, Slocum anchored at Sandy Point, a Chilean coaling station, where the 2,000 inhabitants in that dreary land seemed not the worst off in the world. There he was advised to ship hands to fight Indians further west, in the strait, but no one seemed to care to join his expedition. Slocum dropped the idea and instead loaded his guns. But just then, along came Captain Pedro Samblich, a good Austrian of large experience. He gave his fellow mariner a bag of carpet tacks. You must use them with discretion, said Samblich to Slocum. That is to say, don't step on them yourself. With this narrow hint to the use of the tacks, Slocum found the way to keep his deck clear of intruders at night. On the 19th of February, Slocum cleared Sandy Point. He had his first encounter with the terrible squalls called Willy Wars. They were compressed gales of wind that Boreas handed down over the hills in chunks. The next day, his 52nd birthday, he was alone, with hardly so much as a bird in sight, off Cape Froward, the southernmost point of the continent of America. Days of beating against windstorms and currents followed, but fair weather brought no rest. Presently, Slogan was chased by canoes, manned by savages, he did not think it was advisable to let on that he was alone, but stepped into the cabin, crawled through the hold, and then came out the forward hatch, having changed his clothes on the way. That made two men, he wrote. Next, he took the piece of bowsprit he had sawed off at Buenos Aires, and which he still had on board. He was not the man to throw good stuff away, 
and dressed it as a seaman. He arranged it forward and attached a line by means of which he could make it move. Well, that made three of us, but for all that the savages came on faster than before. Two shots, however, fired across their bows, sent them hurrying back to shore. Slocum found and ate excellent mussels in the strait, but he would not try for a duck. In The Loneliness of Life About the Dreary Country, I find myself in no mood to make one life less. In fact, throughout the entire voyage, he fired only at sharks and men. For ten days more, Slocum sailed westward, taking the Magellan weather as it came, flogging against current and wind, anchoring and weighing many times. At last, he reached Point Tamar. Cape Pella, the western entrance, was now in sight. Here I felt the throb of the great ocean that lay before me. I knew now I had put a world behind me, and that I was opening out another world ahead. On a third of March, the captain sailed from Port Tamar for Cape Pillar. The wind was from the northeast, and he hoped it would hold until he was clear of the land. But the spray had hardly plunged into the Pacific when the wind hauled northwest and blew a very hard gale. It was the kind of wind which, 400 years before, had driven Drake south to discover Cape Horn. Slocum could not hold to his westward course. The spray, her sails blown to ribbons, ran before the wind. Under bare poles, she headed southeast as though she would round the horn and carry the captain back into the Atlantic. The waves rose and fell and bellowed the never-ending story of the sea, but the hand that held these held also the spray. If Slocum lived by miracles, he did not count on them. He tried to hold the spray, too. He paid out two long sea ropes to steady his craft and break the combing seas astern. He lashed her helm amidships, but even while the storm raged at its worst, he found his ship wholesome and noble. My mind as to her seaworthiness was put to ease for I. On the fourth day of the gale, Slocum believed he was nearing the point of Cape Horn. Through a rift in the clouds, he saw a mountain which he took for the Cape that decided him to go to the Falkland Islands to refit. He headed east. Actually, however, he was still a hundred miles north of the Cape and instead of rounding it, was fetching in towards the Cockburn Channel, one of the many arms of the strait. Night closed in before the sloop reached land, leaving her feeling the way in the pitchy darkness, he wrote. I saw breakers ahead before long. At this, I wore ship and stood offshore, but was immediately startled by the tremendous roaring of breakers again, ahead and on the lee bow. This puzzled me, for there should have been no broken water where I supposed myself to be. In this way... Among dangers, I spent the rest of the night. Hail and sleet in the fierce squalls cut my flesh till the blood trickled over my face, but what of that? It was daylight, and the sloop was in the midst of the milky way of the sea, and it was the white breakers of a huge sea over sunken rocks which had threatened to engulf her through the night. It was Fury Island I had sighted and steered for. God knows how my vessel escaped." Darwin described these waters at the time of his voyage on the Beagle some fifty years before Slocum's. In the intervening period, that dim region had not changed. Our course, Darwin wrote, lay south down that gloomy passage which I have already alluded to as belonging to another and a worse world. Sir J. Narborough called one part South Desolation because it is so desolate a land to behold. And well indeed might he say so, Outside the main islands there are a numberless scattering of rocks on which the long swell of the ocean incessantly rages. 
We passed out between the east and west furies, and a little further northward there are so many breakers that the sea is called the Milky Way. One sight of such a coast is enough to make a landsman dream for a week about shipwrecks, peril and death. In order to make his way into the strait again, Slocum now had to sail alone around the wildest part of Tierra del Fuego, and he had to rely on his own refitting. He mended his mainsail with palm and needle, and added pieces to it as he went along. When finally he was able to re-enter near Cape Froward, a point he had passed weeks before, he had been carried halfway back to the Atlantic. Once again, the captain turned the spray's prow westward. For a second time, he prepared to sail the second half of the strait. On this passage, the carpet tacks came in handy. Passing Thieves' Bay, he sprinkled them on deck at night. Then, when stealthily boarded by barefoot Fuegian savages, he chalked up a carpet tack victory. His prize was the sight of the Fuegians diving overboard, screaming. Some days later, west of Borgia Bay, when all Indian settlements had been left behind, the captain ran into some rare good luck. Author's note, a latter-day sailor, Felix Reisenberg, wrote, Passing Big Borgia, or Despair Island, we were looking on the unspoiled world of steep mountains, icy crags and terrifying rocks that first met the eyes of Magellan. I came upon a small indentation, the famous spot where ships for long had been in the habit of leaving visiting cards, boards on which were painted their names and the dates of their anchoring. Among the lot, many rotting away, was the name of Captain Slocum's brave little spray. In Borgia Bay, Slocum discovered and salved wreckage goods and many casks of tallow and a barrel of wine. He worked all day in rain and snow, loading the spray, till the vessel was tallowed from keelson to truck. The tallow was stored in the cabin as well as on deck, and all was well smeared. But the captain was happy in the prospect of doing a good business further along on the voyage, for the habits of an old trader would come to the surface. Some years later, when Slocum was home and telling a friend of the voyage, he said, When I was rounding the southern point of Patagonia, we had severe cold weather, and I felt the need for fatter food than I'd been having. Luckily, about that time, I secured some barrels of very fine tallow, and I began to fry buns and doughnuts in that tallow. Here's one of my buns on the mantel now. It looks and feels just like a rock, doesn't it? I must put it in a safer place. Some burglar will be breaking in here after jewellery and take this. It's the last specimen I have, and I wouldn't want to lose it. But at last, on the 13th of April, more than two months after first entering the strait, the spray cleared the tide race off Cape Pilar and the Evangelistas, and was once again in the open Pacific. By the following morning, only the highest mountains could still be seen by the captain. Making good headway on a northwest course, he soon sank them out of sight. Hurrah for the spray, he shouted to the sky, and the seals and the seagulls and the penguins. In hundreds of years, many passages have been made through the Strait of Magellan, but as W.S. Barclay, the English geographer, pointed out, three among them all will not be forgotten. The first is that of the discoverer. The second, Sir Francis Drake's. Without charts, he sailed through from end to end in 16 days. The third is that of Captain Slocum. His, in point of pure seamanship, has been called the most remarkable of all time. All alone, he both navigated and sailed. At the western entrance, he single-handedly survived a Cape Horn equinoctial gale. He passed an entire night cruising and tacking in one of the worst death traps of the Seven Seas. Finding his own way to re-enter the strait, he sailed again to Cape Pilar, 
thus circumnavigating the worst triangle that any mariner could ask for. The single-handers who came after Slocum took other routes and since 1915 have gone through the Panama Canal. His Cape Horn epic has not been repeated and it is not likely that it will be. Well, that's all for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly. And remember, of course, you've got all the content over on YouTube and the Mariner podcast and, of course, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you're safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.